baseball. Nobody wants to watch a pitching battle either. Let's hit the ball deep. Don't worry about your records either. For every superstar that's done steroids, a billion double-A boys have juiced up. So the playing field is plenty even. We'll put an asterisk next to Barry Bonds' name, sure. As soon as we put one next to Babe Ruth's name. Getting to break records before black people were allowed to play? Excuse me? Where is that asterisk? I'd love to know how many homers the Babe would have hit had Cece been throwing 92 on our sliders. Maybe the fat boy would have put the cigar down and quit pointing had Jose been allowed to swim 90 miles to throw him a junk ball. If you don't follow, 90 miles is the distance from Key West to Cuba. Jose is a stereotypical name for Latino ball player, and a jump ball is an impossible pitch to hit yard any place except for the new Yankee Stadium, which is a joke. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? It's your boy, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Half man, half podcast machine. Back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers... And their stories. Want to welcome everyone in. Uh, one and all to my expanding Seamhead Army from the OG vet that has traveled down this path of amazing baseball stories with me the past few months to the newbie pot surfer who may have stumbled onto this barrel by accident and decided to check it out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please remember to subscribe, follow, download, and share. Backwards K-Pod is available on all platforms, wherever you listen to your pods. Or you can visit my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com to hear this or any of my other shows in my always-growing vaults of archive shows. And if you listen to your pods on Apple or Spotify, please remember to rate and review me as you see fit. I ain't scared. I come through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. No Patreon, no crowdsourcing. I will never charge my beautiful baseball minds for the content of this show. MLB is now five weeks away from the postseason. Uh, NFL football is about to kick off, college football. But 
I will never leave you. Baseball is a 365-day, 12-month-a-year job at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. And I'll be here every single week of the so-called off-season giving you that free baseball fix. I want to thank everyone for uh, the messages on the last PKP about the Big A of Anaheim. Ironically, the same day, the same day that I dropped that show, uh, Angels owner Art Moreno, he put out a press release that he was willing to explore selling the team. So the future of the Angels comes with a lot of question marks right now. First of all, they haven't played well the last few seasons, let's be honest. Some of that is on the front office. A lot of that is on the front office for sure. Uh, for example, the lack of pitching. And some of it has been beyond their control, such as, you know, injuries to Trout and Rendon. They've tried city name changes, manager changes, and maybe a change at the top is truly what they need. And I'm going to tell you, the social media sites have been brutally vicious to Moreno. Uh, I don't look at them or him as a complete abject failure that I've seen throughout all these pages. Uh, the guys on the team for 20 years, 2004, they went to the World Series and they won it. Uh, a lot of teams didn't win the World Series in the past 20 years. Uh, this misnomer that they've been just flat out awful for all, all of the 2000s, it's, it's a lie, it's a myth. Uh, the Angels have short, they've struggled lately, they have. Um, but, you know, 2014... They won 100 some, yeah, I think 100 games, and they were the 104 games, maybe? They were the best team in baseball. That's 2014. That's seven years ago, eight years ago. Now, the last five years have not been good at all. You know, you throw in that COVID season, they've had a lot of under 500 seasons there, and it hasn't been good. But I don't look at Artie Moreno as this abject failure. Things haven't gone good the last couple of years, you know, that's the baseball cycle of things. And Marco from Bakersfield, California, he writes me, I love the history of the Big A show. I'm a huge Angels fan, but I honestly knew so little about the history of Angels Stadium. Thank you. I'm curious as to your opinion as to what the Angels should do if Artie Moreno does sell the team. That's a great question, Marco. And it really was weird that that news broke literally hours after I dropped that last show. Look. I subscribe to the philosophy that you are either competing to win a World Series or you are a team rebuilding for the future. And whichever one you do, you got to do it all the way, 100% all in. And the problem with the Cherubs, in my opinion, first and foremost, is they haven't shown a reasonable plan for doing either. They kind of seem like this team that's drifting the middle, high, you know, high payroll, you know, uh, overvalued prospects coming through the system. They come up, they don't quite produce. I just don't see a reasonable plan for them either competing for a World Series title or, you know, rebuilding. They've spent money acquiring, acquiring guys like Rendon, investing in Trout long term. But the pitching has been atrocious. So bad, in fact, that they drafted like 400 pitchers in 2021. I mean, just hoping that three or, or four of those guys can can 
can catch on to the big big club. And then look, young prospects like Joe Adele, they've underperformed to their minor league projections. Guys like Brandon Marsh, who had you know got a good little skill set there, you sent him back into Philly at the trade deadline. You hired and fired Joe Madden, and it's been very inconsistent the last five years or so. So I go back to either you're trying to win a World Series or you are rebuilding. And clearly, the Halos are not in a position to even think about competing for a world title anytime soon. So they should be rebuilding. So the first thing I do is I steal a GM from a front office that has experience in rebuilding. Someone like uh, someone like in the Braves system, Astros, White Sox, Padres, or Orioles, for example. And then, I mean, I'm sorry, Eagles fan, but I would burn it to the fucking ground. This template is not working. It will never work. And it's costing a lot of money for very little return. I would trade Otani in the offseason and stock your farm with a Juan Soto-like return. I would also move Trout and Rendon. Uh, I mean, if he ever gets healthy, he regains credibility and value. I, I know this is painful to hear, Angels fan, but it's time to rip that Band-Aid off. This core of guys is not bringing a title to SoCal. What, what brings me to the second thing, the Angels need to go back to the Anaheim namesake. The Angels are not L.A. The Angels are Anaheim, and that should be a source of pride for them. If you're not, if you're not going to use Anaheim, they go back to being the California Angels. And then, at that point, maybe it's time to build a new crib and a new port of Cali. So, I want to thank you for your question, Marco. I really appreciated that. That news just kind of did fall into our laps when we, when we were ready to, uh, when I, you know, not long after I dropped that show last week. So, that was pretty crazy. And uh, that's my take on that. How about yours? And if you want to reach out to the show and drop a line, you can do it in various ways. You can email backwardskpod at gmail.com. The show's Twitter handle is at back underscore podcast underscore K. Or you can find me on Facebook at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network group page and drop me a line there. So, with all that being said, looks like the catcher is coming down. It's time to get this uh, train rolling one more time. And this week, we're going to explore the death of Cleveland Indians shortstop Ray Chapman. Uh, as most of us hardcore seam heads know, Chapman was hit in the head by a pitch thrown by Yankees submarine-style hurler Carl Mays, and he would die 12 hours later, becoming the first and only Major League Baseball player to die as a direct result from an injury suffered during a Major League game. But many of us, myself included, I really didn't know the real... You know, the full story and how this tragedy may have helped the game to evolve in its professional infancy. And I also wondered to myself, how did this moment impact Mays, a a player we rarely hear about? So I figured, what the hell? Let's really dig into this topic. uh, Topic, let's collect these two ballplayers and their stories here at Backwards K Pot. First of all, when I began the research on this, I kept thinking about athletes, you know, who are connected to one another. 
you know, until the, you know, throughout the career, careers until the end of their days. You know, like Bird Magic, Bobby Thompson, Ralph Branca, Borg and McEnroe, Ollie and Frazier. And we look, we look on these connections with admiration. We see greatness. We see the spirit of competition and the things that make us love sports in the first place. However, the Mays-Chapman connection, much like, say, Rose and Fossey, it's this, like this infamous connection, a cautionary connection that in theory probably had to happen in order to affect serious change in the game. And that's just the awful reality of it. Because as human beings, we are reactive. We're not proactive. So, let's start with a brief study of Chapman's profile here. Raymond Johnson Chapman was born in January 15, 1891 in Beaver Dam, Kentucky. Broke into the majors in 1912 as a 22-year-old shortstop for the Cleveland team, then known as the Naps. They were named after Napoleon Lajouet. Uh, he was a top-notch bunter. He was a top-notch, top-notch bunter. <laughs> That's easy for you to say. Which should make a lot of you shift lovers and anti-metrics dinosaurs happy. Love the bunt. He's sixth on the all-time list for sack bunts. And he holds the single-season record of 67 in 1917. It's why he's so remembered. Not because he died. Because he was a bunter. But in reality, only the great Stuffy McGinnis had more career sack bunts for a right-handed hitter. He was a fantastic glove. Batted 300 or batted three times. Led the tribe and stole the bases four times. And in 1952, he swiped uh, 52 bases. And that was a team record. Until 1980, when Miguel Dion broke it with 61. On the day of his death, Ray was batting 303 with 97 runs scored. Hell of a season. So, I want to take a quick look at his career numbers so we can kind of get a grasp of the player he was. Let's see what we got here. Ray Chapman. Nine years, all of them with the Indians. A 29.3 wins above replacement, 1,051 games, 1,053 hits, and 4,608 plate appearances. So he had more hits than games played. That's pretty impressive. 162 doubles, 81 triples, 17 home runs, 364 ribs, 238 stolen bases, only 52 times caught, 1,428 total bases. And a 278, 358, 377 slash with a 111 OPS plus. So you can see he's uh, a very solid, proficient player. Not Hall of Fame caliber, but certainly respectable and a skilled baller. A world-renowned bunter. Now, in 1920... That uh, AL pennant race, it, it was tighter than a bullfrog's ass. Uh, three teams were separated by a mere half game in the middle of August. The Indians and the White Sox were in a virtual tie. The Tribe sat at 70-40, and 40, and the Chai Sox were 72-42. and 42, And the Yankees were breathing down both of their necks with a 72-43 and 43 record. 
Now, Cleveland would take to the rails for what was to be their last run through the East Coast teams in 1920. They had 15 games left with the Yankees, Red Sox, A's, and Senators before heading home to take on the Tigers. The opener was in New York City, August 16, 1920, a little over 102 102 years ago, a featured marquee pitching matchup between the Tribes, Stan Kowalewski, who was 18 and 9, and the Yankees, Carl Mays, who was 18 and 8. The two pitchers won top of their respective games. While using totally different styles to get their results, Kowalewski was your classic overhand motion guy, while Mays, the submariner, would often graze his knuckles on the bump when he was pitching. And Kowalewski of the Indians, he already had two 20-win seasons on his resume, and in 1920 would be his third. And he would finish 24-14 and 14 that year with a 2.49 ERA. His out pitch was a spitball. And even though that pitch was outlawed, there were special exemptions granted to Kovaleski and 16 other pitchers in the league because the spitball was their main pitch. And those pitchers would be allowed to throw that pitch until their retirement. Mays. He had two 21 seasons to his credit that he crafted while playing for Boston in 1916 and 1917. And he was part of a deal that sent him to the Yankees. Remember the Red Sox, you know, they sold everybody, including Babe Ruth to the Yankees. No, no, Nanette, give me a break. So he was part of the deal, sent him to the Yankees a year before. Uh, Mays had a reputation of drilling dudes, and many hitters throughout the league, they complained of his of his approach on the mound. On this day, it was a gray, dreary day at the Polo Grounds that day, and it rained all morning, and then it had stopped. The threat of rain did little to deter a crowd from coming out to witness the 1920 pennant race. An estimated 20,000 seamheads showed up at the game, that started with a light drizzle, and it would eventually taper off in the third inning. Now, the Indians strike first with one out in the second when Steve O'Neill smashes his third home run of the year into the left field bleachers. And taking the lead one nothing. The Yankees had a chance to tie the bottom half as Pink Bodie led off with a base knock for the Yanks, first hit of the day. Bodie takes second on a sack bunt by Muddy Ruel. Mays grounded one to Kowaleski, who forced Bodie out at third. And Aaron Ward would foul out to O'Neill for the third out. And that was about as dangerous a threat that the Yankees would muster against Kowaleski until late in the ninth inning. With one out in the top of the fourth, Indians third baseman Larry Gardner walked and then went from first to third on a single by Steve O'Neill. First baseman Doc Johnson smacked a ground ball rocket to Yankee shortstop Roger Peckinpah, who fielded the ball cleaning through to home to cut down Gardner, only to watch the catcher Ruel, Gary Sanchez, that shit, drop the ball and allowed Gardner to score the unearned run. Bill Wamsgans grounded a ball to Ward at third, but he fumbled the transfer, and everyone was safe with the bases loaded. Kovaleski skies went out to Bodie in center field. Plating O'Neill with a sack fly and giving Cleveland a three to nothing lead after four. Now, Ray Chapman would lead off the fifth, 
And the very first pitch from Mays, it crashed into the left side of his head, and he crumbles to the ground. And I don't know, folks, maybe it was the gloomy weather or the dirty baseball. You know, these baseballs, they were, you know, kind of expensive back then. And, you know, they, they played with the same ball for as long as they could. I mean, fans were even throwing the ball back so that they could continue to play with these balls. So it could have been uh, uh, numerous things that factored into it. Gloomy weather, dirty baseball. And to this day, one, one must wonder, did, did Chappie ever see that fateful pitch at all? The ball, it flew off his head with such force, and it was followed, followed by a loud crack that Mays thought Chapman had hit the ball at the bat, so he picked the ball up, that it bounced him bounced out to him at the mound, and he threw over the first to, get, to try to get the out. Home plate umpire Tommy Connolly, though, he, he knew exactly what had happened, as he immediately called for a dead ball, and then quickly turned to the stands, waving frantically for the services of a physician. Two doctors quickly came out and attended Chapman at the plate, and, you know, this deafening silence that falls onto the polar grounds. Eventually, there was an applause as Chapman rose to his feet with the aid of two teammates and walked across the infield to, uh, to the Indians' club's house, which was accessed through center field at polar grounds back then. But Chapman would again lose consciousness as the two teammate, teammates had to carry him into the clubhouse. He was rushed to St. Lawrence Hospital, which is about a half mile from the ballpark, and the scuttlebutt going around the stadium was uh, this fear that the, the shortstop had fractured his skull. A quiet and unresponsive Carl Mays never left the mound, and his face was called one without expression, sympathy, or care. Of course, this is long before what we have now, you know, that's 24-hour sports media and cams on everything. Uh, there is no video or even a radio call for this. So basically, the research is limited to print and word of mouth, you know, from like these old-timer interviews. And a dark cloud of gloom now fell over the ballpark. And the game, as you can imagine, as there were still bloody remains from the incident around home plate during the rest of the game. Chapman was one of the most popular players in the league at the time. And the air was sucked right out of the playoff atmosphere at the Polo Grounds that day. Harry Lute, L-U-N-T-E, I hope I pronounced that right. Harry Lute came in and ran for Chapman. And I would remember that name if I were you. That's quite a piece of trivia there. Uh, who came in to run for Ray Chapman? Harry Lute. The next batter, and Chapman's good roommate, as well as eventual Hall of Famer, Tris Speaker. He hit a fielder's choice grounder to second baseman Del Pratt, who threw to Peckinpah to force out Lunte. Back-to-back singles by Gardner and O'Neill, uh, who's really having a hell of a game here. Two RBIs, scored two runs. O'Neill, he pushed the speaker across the dish to give Cleveland a 4 to nothing lead going into the bottom of the fifth. And a real quick sidebar on Harry Lunte, the guy who pinched ran for Chappie. 
Uh, I found this kind of interesting. Even though he would take over Chapman's position after that August day in 1920, his career was short-lived. He wound up playing 23 games at shortstop in 1920. Most of those came after Chapman's death. He had a 197-250-197 slash and an 18 OPS+. plus. Yes, folks, I said an 18. The Indians would then give youngster Joe Sewell a shot. And he would reward the tribe with a 14-year Hall of Fame career. Meanwhile, Kovaleski, he was able to stay poised, and he was burying the Yankees. He retired the Bombers in the order in the first, second, fourth, sixth, and eighth innings. And through eight frames, the Yankees had only managed four hits. However, in the bottom of the ninth, Babe Ruth let off the inning with his uh, first hit of the day, a single to right field. Second baseman Del Pratt walked. Duffy Lewis the same Duffy Lewis that uh, the left field inclined outfield in Fenway Park, Duffy's Cliff was named after. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I have the Fenway Park show in the archive and explained that long before the Green Monster was there, there was actually an incline in left field and it was called Duffy's Cliff. If you haven't seen it, go to your Google machine, check it out now. Duffy's Cliff, Cliff Fenway Park. It's truly amazing. I had no idea that they had, they had a hill out there in left field of Fenway, and I promise you, there are all kinds of nuggets of info in that show if you haven't heard it yet. And that's on all these podcast platforms, or stop by diamondstatejake.poppy.com to check it out. Okay. Where was I? Uh, Ruth on second, Pratt on first. Duffy hits a solo shot to left field that Yankees outfielder Charlie Jameson flags down. Ruth stays put at second, one down. Both Ruth and Pratt, they would move up the base when Wally Pip grounds out to the first baseman. And they would both score from a double off the bat of Ping Bodie. Ruel followed with a single pass third base, and Bodie would cross the plate to cut the lead down to 4-3. to three. Now center fielder Trish Speaker, he jogs in from his position to talk with Kovalaski. The righty assured speaker, he was up to the challenge of getting the last out in this important game. The Yankees would send pitcher to lefty O'Doul to the plate with Rua at first, but he would, weak a re- he would hit a weak grounder to shortstop of all the positions where Lutze went the short way to Bill Wamsgans for the force out and the game. In spite of the huge win on Yankees' turf, the mood in the visitors' clubhouse was somber, as you can imagine, as the teammates and press were all looking for answers. The doctors at St. Lawrence, they operated on Chapman's skull into the wee hours of the morning, and he actually survived the surgery. Uh, Trish Speaker contacted Chapman's wife, Catherine, who rushed to New York City to be by her husband's side. She was too late to arrive, though, as Chapman died in the early morning hours of August 17th. So now you have a lot of pissed off dudes looking squarely at Carl Mays, who was never a sympathetic figure in those days. Ty Cobb, who was a very close friend of Chapman, actually, he rallied the Tigers brass and players to write a petition demanding AL President Ban Johnson to ban Mays from ever playing again. His former team, the Red Sox, would also join the fray as they petitioned for similar penalties. And Mays affirmed to his heart that the ball was wet and it sailed on him. 
which I can believe. It's 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 probably the same ball for all nine innings. And he always asks, what would I gain in hitting Chapman with a pitch? It's the most regrettable incident of my baseball career. I would give anything to undo what happened. Chapman was a game-splendid fellow. Chapman's funeral was held at St. John's Cathedral in downtown Cleveland on August 20th, 1920. Thousands of mourners, they packed the church or stood outside on Superior Avenue. Bayer Johnson, who attended the funeral, decided not to punish Mays. And with a heavy heart, the team returned to Cleveland for the service. And then they went back on the road to Boston. They played two doubleheaders at Fenway, and they took three out of the four. The Indians would go on to win the AL pennant, their first in franchise history. And they would go on to defeat the Brooklyn Robins in seven games to win their first championship. Carl Mays went into seclusion for about ten days after Chappie's death. When New York went to Cleveland for a three-game series uh, later in the year, he did not accompany the team. Many thought the submarine-throwing right-hander never showed any kind of contrition or visceral reaction, and which created a reputation for him that, that pretty much followed him. Well, it still follows him to this day. You know, over 50 years after his death. With Chapman's death being a first, it was most likely a natural reaction to find something or someone to blame. That still very much happens in society today. Mays, well, he was deemed a malcontent early in his career, long before that fateful August day, and that made him an easy target. And obviously, he threw that fateful pitch, but there has never been one iota of evidence to suggest that there was any beef between the two or the intentions on his part were real. And to make him shoulder the blame, you know, it was just, I don't know, I I think it's unfair, in my opinion. So, let's take a look real quick at Carl Mays' MLB stats real quick, shall we? Carl Mays, here they are. 15-year career with the Red Sox, Yankees, Reds, and New York Giants. 51.2 war. That's pretty impressive. 207 wins, 126 losses, 2.92 ERA, 490 games, 325 starts. And this just happened to catch my eye. In 1920, the year that this happened, he went 26-11 and 11 with a 3.06 ERA. The next year, 1921, he goes 27-9 with a 3.05 ERA. I mean, you know, rock-solid consistency there through some pretty tough times. 231 career complete games, 29 shutouts, 31 saves, 979 earned runs in 3,021 and a third innings. Only 73 home runs given up in 15 years. And that's like, by my math, that's like a smidge less than five a year. 862 strikeouts. Check this out. One balk in 15 years. His 119 OPS Plus. That's on par with uh, Warren Spahn and Bob Lemon. And he had a 3.24 FIP. And a 1.21 whip. 
So, look, not a bad career. In fact, you could say as far as pitchers in his era, era, he is among some of the best on justice numbers alone. He, he should have been at least in the Hall of Fame conversation. I'm not saying he should be in the Hall of Fame, but he should have been in the conversation. Unfortunately, uh, the six points he received uh, on the 1958 Hall of Fame ballot, that would be the extent of his support and many points of that August day as the reason why. He was a surly right-hander with a quick temper. He was once fired for throwing a ball into the stands and striking a fan in the head. His accomplishments as a player are largely forgotten and overshadowed by his role in the Chapman death. And just because he didn't want to discuss the incident, it didn't mean he wasn't sorry about what happened to Chapman. He once said in the 1920 issue of Baseball Magazine, The unfortunate death of Ray Chapman is a thing. I I don't like to discuss it. It is a recollection of the most unpleasant kind, which I shall carry with me as long as I live. It is an episode which I shall always regret more than anything that has ever happened to me. And yet, I can look into my own conscience and feel absolved from all the personal guilt in this affair. The most amazing thing is that some people seem to think I did this thing deliberately. And if you wish to believe a man is a premeditated murder, there is nothing I can do to prevent it. Every man is a master of his own thoughts, and I cannot prevent it, however much I may regret it. And yet, I believe I'm entitled to point out some of the reasons why such a view is illogical. I'm a pitcher, and I know some of the things that a pitcher can do, as well as some of the things he can't do. I know that a pitcher can't stand 60 feet away from the plate and throw a baseball so as to hit a batter in the head once in a hundred tries. That is, of course, assuming that a pitcher wanted to hit a batter in the head, which is absurd on the face of it. But to actually kill a man? It is by no means sufficient to just hit him on the head. Walter Johnson, with all the speed, has hit batters in the head, yet none have died. Fairly often, a batter gets hit in the head and is barely injured. There is only one spot on a player's skull where a pitched baseball would do him serious injury, and that is the spot around his temples, which is hardly half as big as the palm of my hand. Supposing to meet some of these malicious slanderers that have been directed at me, we assume that I'm a moral monster to deliberately murder a batter at the plate, a batter with whom I never had a quarrel with and from whose death I could not possibly benefit from. What chance would I have in perpetrating this crime? I would not only have to hit a batter, but hit him in the particular part of the skull no bigger than a quarter. It is interesting to note that while Mays was subject to scapegoating and blame, Chapman's death did very little to change the culture of pitching inside or even hitting batters on purpose. Batting helmets were still a decade away. So the fact that such a sobering result comes from this one play, it leads me to only assume that most people deep in their hearts, they they knew this was an accident. Mays also said he was often questioned why he didn't go check on Chapman at the clubhouse. 
to which Carl reminds these dumbasses that he was pitching in the game and he couldn't just leave the game and check on Chappie. By the time he was pulled from the game, Chapman was already in St. Lawrence Hospital. He did not seek out Chappie's wife when she was in town. First of all, the sight of Chappie dead by his hand was a vision he knew would haunt him for the rest of his life. He really struggled with this decision, and many people took him to task for it. And folks, it is a shame that you could think that somebody would do this on purpose. I, I, I honestly, I do not believe that he did it on purpose. Bluetooth, ready for connection. I think that's why I'm going to wrap it up. Looks, sound, looks like my uh, some of my stuff is going up here. <laughs> uh, just a couple of quick other nuggets from the story. Chapman loved baseball, but he was head over heels crazy about his wife. Catherine Daly Chapman, the daughter of a prominent Cleveland business executive. Uh, that season, he began to ponder retirement as he looked forward to a big family with a lot of children. Had he lived and seen it through to the world championship end, that really may have served as a cap to his career, and he may have just rode off in the distance and lived heavily, uh, happily ever after. You know, that's a real butterfly effect moment right there. The tribe pitcher that day, Stan Kowaleski, he had suffered heartache earlier in the season as well when his wife died. And it was a major shock to the Indians' clubhouse, and the team rallied around Stan. This was a team that, that knew loss that year. Even though in the end, they, they're going to win it all. I mean, you won the ring, but man, did it cost you. I mean, way too much if you ask me. And his all-time, Chappie, he was the team crooner. He would often sing songs to Catherine, and just hours before being hit on the head, he was leading the team in songs on the train. Chapman and Mays were uh, both born in the same year, 1891, in the same bluegrass state of Kentucky. Chapman, as I told you, was born in Beaver Dam, Kentucky, while Mays was born in Liberty, Kentucky. That's about 135 miles apart. Same year, same state. 135 miles apart they grew up. Many designs were submitted in 1920 for a plaque to remember Chapman. It was supposed to hang at League Park, but later it turned up at Cleveland Municipal Stadium. At some point it went missing again, presumably in storage, but it would turn up in 2007 in Progressive Field, and it is mounted properly in Heritage Park. The bronze plaque stands 4 foot 3 and weighs 175 pounds, and it reads... Raymond Johnson Chapman. This tablet is erected by lovers of clean sport as an affectionate tribute to his inspiring enthusiasm, cheerfulness, and loyalty to his club. And as I told you, the uh, the tribe went on to win the World Series over the Brooklyn Robins that year. Uh, they won in seven seven games. And a best of nine matchup. And that was less than two months after the death of Chapman. Emotionally, the team had to overcome the sadness and loss of a teammate and a friend. And physically, it was a battle of attrition to get through it. 
The White Sox looking to avenge their shady loss in 1919 were formidable as well as were the Yankees. The White Sox were good, but the Tribe was better. Finished 1956, the best record in the majors, and they left the Sox and Yankees two and three games back, respectively. And that, my Seamhead friends, is the story of the death of Ray Chapman. A lot of stuff out there. If you want to learn more about Mazer Chapman, you can find your stuff there on the Google machine, YouTube. A lot of great stories from the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And if you want to further the research into this, I, 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 I would suggest you look into those options. I'm kind of surprised it, it still took 12 years before Batty Helmets came along. I always thought it was not long after. And if you remember from our Branch Ricky show, it was Mr. Ricky who invented the Batty Helmet. I, I just never realized it was that long after Chapman. Uh, if you haven't heard that show, then what are you waiting for? Go over to DiamondSnakeJake.Popping.com to check out the Branch Ricky show. So, like the Hydra, I chop off one head, but another one grows in its place. With the death of Ray Chapman in the books, I now turn my attention to one of the absolute greatest baseball players who ever lived, as next week, we will collect the amazing story of Teddy Ballgame, Ted Williams. But hey, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Parents, if you see your kids sitting on the couch with their noses in the phone board AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day.